Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 6960, 2020 Gun Salute, a tribute to science fiction writer James E. Gunn. Welcome once again to Retrogram, the logbook.com's retro TV podcast that breaks through the barrier of time, tumbles back through the history of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, superhero, and spy-fi shows on TV between 1970 and 1990, and somehow reports back to us living in the gleaming, computerized, spandex-clad world of the future. I don't know about you, but after all the eating I've done over the past few weeks, I could do with something a little less form-fitting than spandex. I mean, you can't hide a thing. You also can't hide from the Reaper, and just a couple of days before Christmas 2020, the Reaper took one of the foundational figures in this serious study of science fiction as a legitimate literary genre, James E. Gunn. Born in 1923 to a family that was already involved in the field of publishing, Gunn became a published author in his early 20s and began writing science fiction professionally shortly after that. He had graduated from the University of Kansas with a bachelor's degree in journalism and a master's in English, so of course he was going to be a writer, and a fairly prolific one at that. His earliest works appeared in pulp magazines such as Thrilling Wonder Stories and Startling Stories, sometimes under the pen name of Edwin James, which was really just his middle name and first name reversed. Even his master's thesis, one of the first forays into the study of science fiction as a literary genre all its own, was published. It was that work which influenced some of Gunn's most renowned works. His nonfiction work, Alternate Worlds, The Illustrated History of Science Fiction, was published in 1975 and won a Locus Award and a Special Award at the 1976 Worldcon. His 1982 book, Isaac Asimov, The Foundations of Science Fiction, won a Hugo Award, and his 1988 work, The New Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, was barely edged out of a Hugo of its own. He edited a series of anthologies of works where he used excerpts and short stories to illuminate all of the ways that a work can be considered speculative fiction. His autobiography, Star Begotten, A Life Lived in Science Fiction, was published in 2017, two years after he was inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. It's safe to say that a lot of us writers and podcasters who fancy ourselves to be historians or scholars of the genre of science fiction in any medium owe a huge debt to James E. Gunn. He was among the first to really give wide exposure to the idea that science fiction was a huge and growing literary genre in its own right, and one that could stand up to scrutiny for both its science and its fiction. If we stand on the shoulders of giants, James E. Gunn is among the tallest of those giants. But Gunn's original works of fiction were as formidable as his studies of other authors' works. His 1972 novel, The Listeners, is said to have been an enormous influence on the formation of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And Carl Sagan himself said it was one of the most intelligently written stories of first contact that anyone had ever attempted. 
The Listeners was also a runner-up for that year's John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. In 1996, Gunn wrote a novel-length adaptation of Theodore Sturgeon's unproduced Star Trek script, The Joy Machine. But it was his 1964 series of four short stories gathered under the collective title The Immortals that gave Gunn one of his very small number of film or TV credits. An adaptation of those stories was turned into a 1969 TV movie of the week on ABC that proved popular enough that a weekly series followed a year later, lasting only 15 episodes. So for this retrogram, we're breaking the rules and rewinding further than usual by a few months, because it's entirely possible that we're going to land on that weekly series, so we might as well acquaint ourselves with its origins. So we return to the very last day of September 1969, the same month that had seen the first appearance of automatic teller machines, Scooby-Doo, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Brady Bunch, and Love American Style. And it was also when viewing audiences first met. The Immortal aired Tuesday, September 30th, 1969 on ABC. The personal executive jet of Jordan Braddock, owner of Braddock Industries, experiences a massive electrical failure and has to start preparing for an emergency landing. Traveling with him is his glamorous and noticeably younger wife, Janet, and much like the plane's pilots and everyone else we see the man interact with in the space of about two minutes, she's none too fond of her husband. Oh, this emergency landing, it's going to be more like an emergency crash landing. Put a pin in that. We'll get back to it momentarily. Ben Richards, a daredevil test driver for Braddock Industries Automotive Division, is taking the latest Braddock Industries engine for a spin, 0 to 85 in just 7 seconds, but the engine's still running too hot. Important phone call for Mr. Richards. He needs to pick up groceries on the way home. Chances are Ben won't be doing 0 to 85 in the Safeway parking lot. Hey, remember multimillionaire executive Jordan Braddock? He survived the plane's emergency landing, just... The missus is a bit banged up, but Mr. Braddock is hours away from death. His doctor says the rough landing has taken weeks away from his life, not months or years. Mr. Braddock was probably going to die soon anyway because of his age, his general health, and his stress level. Dr. Pierce also wants to know how much Mrs. Braddock will be inheriting. You see, no one's really that worried about Mr. Braddock. He acted like he owned the world, and it seems that the world can't wait to be rid of him but he's receiving blood infusions anyway. And guess who the name of the donor on the blood bag is? Why, this is the blood of Braddock Industries' own daredevil test driver, Ben Richards. And that night, the night he was fully expected to die, Jordan Braddock is feeling much better. He has his strength back and all of his attitude. The next morning, he says he feels better than he has in years. He feels younger. Whatever Dr. Pierce did, Braddock wants more of it. Hell, he wants to bottle it, sell it, and make a few more million off the deal. Dr. Pierce pays Ben Richards a visit at the test track. Have you ever been sick? Did you ever suffer from minor childhood illnesses? And could you give us another sample or two of your blood? The answers in order are nope, nope, and eh, sure, I guess, why not? Dr. Pierce takes those samples, shoots them into lab rats that have diseases, and hey, the lab rats are all better. Ben's blood is full of just about every immunity factor known to man, and lots of it. Dr. Pierce tries to find out who Ben's parents were and where they had been, but Richards was adopted. He's never met his birth parents or found out anything about them, other than that he has a brother out there, somewhere, who he also has never met. 
but Dr. Pierce also believes that this cocktail of blood chemistry makes Ben Richards immune to something else, old age. He could live to be five to ten times older than the average human male. He's practically immortal. At home, Ben's girlfriend is thrilled by this news. Hey, he's going to be in the prime of his life for a long time. But, um, on second thought, what happens if she grows old? Will he stick around then? Will he outlive her? Will he outlive their children, if they have any? Turns out that's a really good question. When he's released from the hospital, Jordan Braddock is complaining that the electric spark he felt just days ago is diminishing. He wants it back, whatever it was, wherever it came from. He wants it back. Dr. Pierce checks on the lab rats and calls Ben Richards back into the lab. Though Ben's blood is a kind of medical miracle, its effects are fleeting when anyone else receives a transfusion from him. Dr. Pierce thinks this is really bad news for Ben Richards. If the word gets out about his blood, Braddock will almost be the least of his worries. Powerful men would give nearly anything to imprison Ben and use him as a kind of human blood bank. Great for them, but not so great for Ben. Dr. Pierce's advice? Go home, grab your lady friend, and run. Run for your lives. But Ben's not so sure. He thinks his blood could help a lot of people, terminally ill kids, people who are dying before they've had a chance to contribute to society. Against his better judgment, Dr. Pierce sets up a meeting between Ben and Braddock. Braddock's not looking so hot. If anything, he looks like a dead man, not really walking, more like rolling, because he's already confined to a wheelchair again. And he has none of Ben Richards' concerns for all of the people who could benefit from research into Ben's blood. He really just wants the blood for himself. And since Ben is the sole source of that blood, Braddock expects to have some say over how Ben lives his life. He'll have to stop being a test driver, for one thing. That's far too dangerous. And since Braddock is technically Ben's boss, he can directly intervene in Ben's life. Ben's reaction to this is to say he likes being a test driver, and he could just as easily find that work elsewhere. With that, Ben takes his leave of his boss and returns to his job. I mean, he's a free man in a free country, right? The next day, Ben is pulled away from that job by a man in a suit, demanding that he come see Braddock again. Ben agrees, but when he arrives at Braddock's mansion, he finds himself surrounded by more men in suits, and it finally occurs to Ben that Dr. Pierce was right. He tries to fight his way out, but he gets maced and dragged into a basement-level area, originally a bomb shelter, but now it's been turned into a place where Ben can live, but never leave. There's a bed, there's a library, the furniture's all bolted down and his belt and tie are taken away so Ben can't harm himself, and there are surveillance cameras and the room is bugged. Despite all his rage, Ben is now just a rat in a cage for the personal use of his benefactor, Jordan Braddock. Braddock says nicer accommodations are being prepared, and Ben can have whatever he wants there, but not his freedom. But what if anyone comes looking for Ben? Braddock's got that angle covered, too. He has already directed considerable resources from his organization to faking Ben's death. No one will come looking. Except for Dr. Pierce. He knows exactly what's happened, and he accuses Braddock of kidnapping and imprisoning Ben Richards. Oops, and he's made that accusation within earshot of Mrs. Braddock. Jordan Braddock tells Dr. Pierce his services will no longer be needed. Pierce ups the ante. He's going to the cops. No, you're not, Braddock counters, because if you tell them why Ben Richards is so valuable, and he does turn up alive somewhere, the whole world will be after his blood, not just me. And that blood, Dr. Pierce, will be on your hands. Braddock's plans don't just extend to Ben, though. He has found out that Ben has a brother, and he has started to search for whoever that man is, wherever he is, so he can be caged up just like Ben. 
With two specimens full of that kind of blood, Braddock can offer some kind of immortality to what he calls the cream of humanity, and of course Braddock alone will decide who's in that category. Days later, Ben's dinner is rolled into his cage on a cart, served with soft utensils so he can't hurt himself or use them to escape, except that there's a handwritten note telling him to search the cart. Oh, hey, there's a gun. And the next time one of Braddock's thugs opens the door, Ben makes his escape. He's out of the cage at last. He calls his girlfriend from a payphone, lets her know he's alive, and tells her he's getting on a plane, but she can't follow him because Braddock will be having her watched and followed. Months pass, and finally, very carefully following instructions, she finally visits L.A., and she and Ben, um, <clears throat> catch up. But when they come up for air and set foot out the door for food, yeah, she's been followed. Braddock's thugs are hot on their trail. The only place to run is upstairs, the roof of the building where Ben's living now. Ben manages to block the door to the roof, but it only delays the inevitable. Braddock's men have them cornered on the roof. Ben threatens to jump off the building. His blood can't do Braddock any good if it's splattered all over the streets of Los Angeles. Ben is noticed standing on the roof. Police sirens are getting closer. Braddock's men shoot Ben's girlfriend when she tries to draw the cops' attention, but then they take off to avoid arrest. She is rushed to the hospital where Ben insists on providing blood for a transfusion. She recovers from two bullets in the gut, but Ben knows he can't stick around. He leaves the hospital and her. And there they are. Braddock's tough guys, loitering around the hospital parking lot. They've got him surrounded. But who's this who just pulled up? It's a girl, my lord, and a sports car, which probably isn't a Ford, slowing down and telling Ben to get in. Ben has a different idea, though. He wants her to scoot over and let him into the driver's seat. A chase ensues through the streets of L.A. and right out of town, where, after a little off-roading, Ben jumps a creek that he knows his pursuer's car won't make it over. He's free again. This is why you don't get in a high-speed chase involving a test driver. But this time, there's no going back. He's leaving town and going on the run, trying to stay a step ahead of Braddock and his men. Braddock's furious when he finds out that Ben hasn't been captured, but he's even more furious to find out that his wife is the one who helped Ben escape both times. I'm guessing somebody's not going to be in the will too much longer. Ben is going to look for his brother and warn him that Braddock's looking for both of them. And Ben's going to wait, much like Braddock's likely soon-to-be ex-wife is waiting, for Braddock to die of old age. The problem is, the doctors at the hospital in L.A. know, Braddock's men know, too many people now know that Ben Richards' blood is the most valuable substance on earth. So he may be running forever. In this case, perhaps, really forever. The end. And also just the beginning. The Immortal Pilot Movie was written by Robert Specht, based on James Gunn's book, The Immortals, which was actually a collection of four short stories. The director was Joseph Sargent, a name who will no doubt be familiar to anyone who has watched um, much original Star Trek, with music by Dominic Frontier of the Outer Limits fame, and Dominic would later go on to score the spy-fi series Search, which we will be covering in other installments of Retrogram. The star of the show was Christopher George as Ben Richards with Jessica Walters, Janet Braddock, Barry Sullivan as Jordan Braddock, and Ralph Bellamy as Dr. Pierce. Now, Joseph Sargent is not the only name you will find familiar here uh, if you are a longtime viewer and watcher of credits on Star Trek. Um, Edward Milkus and Douglas Grindstaff both worked on the pilot, 
you have to keep in mind that this was a Paramount production. This was a Paramount TV production, which was the entity formerly known as Desilu. And Star Trek had just ended earlier in 1969, so quite a few of the behind-the-scenes personnel from Star Trek made their way onto The Immortal during its series run. You would also see contributions from Gene L. Kuhn, Simon Winselberg, Don McDougall, Robert Hamner, Greg Peters, Stephen Candle, um, a stuntman named Bob Orison also frequented both shows. And we're not even counting actors who appeared in both, because there were quite a few of those, obviously. So, in some ways, The Immortal was the logical next career stepping stone for several of these veterans of Star Trek. And by the way, I mentioned that the sports car was probably not a Ford. Uh, almost all of the cars were Chryslers, because Chrysler provided the vehicles for production. It's kind of interesting, um, you know, sort of the state of the medical art in 1970, or, or 1969, as the case may be. You have people smoking in hospitals. You have doctors smoking in hospitals. And here's the other thing that really kind of gets me, and it doesn't become a thing until after Ben is caged up at Braddock's compound. Why does no one want to stop Ben from smoking? I mean, granted, um, the fact that this has not made him sick may indicate that Ben Richards' blood um, makes him immune from cancer. Wow. But the funny thing is, while you would think that would be a, an important, important, super important plot point, at this point, I don't think a lot of people readily accepted that there was a link between smoking and cancer, or tobacco use of any kind and cancer. And so it, it it's a non-starter here. It never gets mentioned. It's... um. It's kind of funny in that regard, but it's something that I instantly thought of. It's like, oh, God, no, he's smoking. Stop him. He, you know, you would think they would not let him do that, but pff, yeah, it's 1969. Smoking is perfectly healthy. And I appreciate that the creek jumping scene is far more indicative of what would actually happen if you jumped a creek in a car. Even the sporty little car that Ben is driving with Mrs. Braddock in the passenger seat. It almost doesn't make the jump, and it has some trouble recovering from that jump and getting back to forward motion. This is not like the General Lee jumping a creek or a lake or something and sticking a perfect landing and keeping moving and not missing a beat, which, let me tell you, that does not happen. That was all film editing. But it, there's a little more realism in, in this case. The Immortal is all very piloty, but it is such a good premise. When I got done watching it, I got to thinking about how you could do this now, because, of course, we now live in an age where everything is interconnected and serialized, and you have season arcs at the very least, possibly multi-season arcs. And if you'll forgive me for once again playing showrunner the home game, you could do so much with this today. Started in 1969 or 1970 again, spend the Spend that first season in 1970, and then do a time jump. Five years, 20 years, 50 years. Ben Richards is still on the run, and everyone is still looking for Ben Richards. I mean, you could fake everyone out by starting in the 70s, and then jump forward and make a real sci-fi piece out of it. Sort of like the jump from life on Mars to ashes to ashes, but on overdrive. I mean, can you imagine how much everyone would want Ben Richards' blood during the AIDS crisis? or COVID-19 for that matter. 
could he risk giving some of his blood to a Stephen Hawking, while also knowing that someone could also give some of that blood to a Bin Laden? But that's not how it happened. The weekly series started exactly one year later on September 30th, 1970, and by the end of January 1971, The Immortal's Journey was over at only 15 episodes. And so was the idea of adapting Gunn's work for film or TV within his lifetime. There were a couple of further film adaptations, though they were produced in Russia. The Immortal series was Hollywood's last attempt to adapt Gunn's work for the screen over 50 years ago. I've often talked about what a fantastic premise The Star Lost is. Another not even a full single season show from the early 70s. And the more I think about it, the more I'm ready to lump The Immortal into the same category. The best pilots are mind-blowing because after watching them, even folks like you and me, who are not tasked with writing scripts or generating stories, can think of all the stories that could be told in that format. And the best of the best sci-fi pilots seem to come from the best of the best authors of that genre, folks like Harlan Ellison and James E. Gunn, who deliberately, carefully constructed universes that lent themselves to more stories than just the first one, because, you know, that's how writers make their living. We will undoubtedly bump into The Immortal again when we return to late 1970 someday. But until then... The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Andrew Howes. 2021 has arrived, and you can join the ranks of the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. Even if you can only pitch in a little bit, even that little bit helps keep the logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and Paul and Mark and Charles and Ashley and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. If ongoing pledges of support aren't your thing, pour us a coffee. That's ko-fi.com slash the logbook and make a one-time donation. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, and even non-medical grade face masks and other goodies from our stores at thelogbook.redbubble.com. And if you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, and Star Trek Lower Decks, or, you know, all the other Star Trek series and anything else on CBS All Access, you can sign up for a free week through the links on our site. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. Bring me the blood of Ben Richards.